This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Today, Nate welcomes back Gareth Murphy, author of Cowboys and Indies, the epic history of the record industry, for a conversation that focused on Thomas Edison and his early rivals in the record industry, then jumps ahead to talk about Chris Blackwell and Island Records in the 60s and 70s. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today I'm joined by Gareth Murphy, author of Cowboys and Indies, The Epic History of the Record Industry. Gareth, welcome. Thank you very much for having me on your show. And so I love this book. This is truly an epic history. It goes all the way back to the invention of the phonograph and the gramophone and the graphophone and all that stuff and takes us all the way into uh, the hip hop era. How did you focus the book? I mean, basically, you built the book around this concept of a record man and apologies for the gendered language. But that's the reality. Most of this era, it was about men running the record industry. Why did you pick that one aspect of the industry to make your key angle? Well, that, I mean, that really is the, the, the kind of the key question of the whole book. It started differently to how it ended. I mean, a book, I always find that with a book, you go in asking yourself a question, and then you go about answering that question. And by the time you find the answer to the question, the original question seems a little bit sort of um, quaint and out of place. Basically, um, the, the period of time that I started my research in was a period of extreme 
doom and gloom. The, the 2010s, around there, uh, people were so pessimistic about the future of music. It was, every, you know, there was bankruptcies, there was job layoffs, there was a steep decline from 1999 all the way down to about 2014. There was just nothing but the figures were getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And a lot of aging out as well. A lot of older baby boomers who were record bosses um, were in charge of the big companies. Now, I was asked by a big guy in France who was probably one of the biggest independents in France. He said to me in a, in a lunch one day, you know, I think you'd be the perfect guy to write a book about record producers. Um, you know, from his perspective, it was a dying breed. It was It was an old sort of job profile or even a type of person that was going out, was becoming extinct. So he sort of pushed me in the direction of a record producer. And it was only by sort of researching that I came across this term, record man, um, which I found kind of interesting, the way it was used, the way people would say it. Um, and it was... It, Going, going in that direction that I sort of got deeper and deeper, I went pre-rock and roll because I think the problem I found very quickly that the pessimism in that period came a lot from the fact that it was such a baby boomer dominated uh, industry and a lot of the gloom and a lot of the pessimism was because we'd forgotten all the pre-war stuff. And it was funny because when I was working on this stuff, everyone was saying, you know, are you sure you want to go into sort of, you know, phonographs and really early stuff? Is that not going to be really boring? And the more I dug up, the more I realized how hilarious it was because there is a spinal tap kind of side to the early gramophone industry. Um, <laughs> it was as crazy as what followed. Um, you know, there maybe wasn't drugs, uh, although there was. Um, but there was the same level of just, you know, rags to riches stories and, and difficult artists. And I realized that the rock and roll was sort of the second life that there was a sort of an extinction that happened in the 1920s and it came back to life. And it was only by digging all this really ancient history up that we realized where we were. And that really became the answer to my question of, is the record man extinct? And the answer is no, that the record industry is so cyclical that you have these extinctions and you have to have these extinctions for things to come back to life. You got to clear the decks, as it were, for a new generation. And let's let's talk about those early days, because that was one of my very favorite parts of this book. I'm not going to be able to cover the whole sweep of the book in this interview, but I want to dip in and out and hit a few key points. In those early days, to me, it's really analogous to the era that we saw around the turn of the 21st century because of all the technological changes. So just like in the 2007 era, you have Steve Jobs coming in from outside as a technologist and kind of saving the day. The first rounds of this story are people like Thomas Edison and Emil Berliner who are not record men. They're inventors and technologists, and they're obsessed with reproducing sound, capturing sound and reproducing it accurately. But it doesn't take long before they're um, are record men in this. Can you quickly tell us a couple of your favorite stories, introduce the big characters? Because there's these conflicts. I mean, this was like an epic 20-year war between Thomas Edison, the inventor of record, sound recording, and his various rivals who, frankly, kind of did it better than Edison did. Exactly. I mean, Edison fell down because he wasn't a musician and he really didn't get it. And although Edison has become very famous, I have a little bit of a suspicion 
obsession about Thomas Edison because he apparently is the owner of so many patents that I'd have to wonder about what he actually invented himself. I'm beginning to think that he was the sort of owner of a laboratory with a lot of people working for him um, and that he owned everything because he, he was the boss, basically. I'm not sure he really did invent as much as he claims to have invented. Um, but that's what that's the, the, the that's how the world was in those days. It was an extremely unfair world compared to today's. Um, and the difference is that Edison didn't take off because it didn't really find a star in the way that Victor did. You know, the Victor talking machine company. Um, you know, because it was founded uh, by basically Emil Berliner, who was a musician. Uh, European musician who came from, um, he had much more, I would say, romantic ideas about technology enabling culture. The big thing in the early 1900s, or even the late sort of 1890s, was that the recording industry would bring um, culture, that would democratize culture. It was one of the, the most famous advertisements was the opera at home. And we forget that, that, you know, in the old days that you had to be extremely rich to be able to go to see an opera. Um, it, most people couldn't, couldn't, just couldn't do it. And so that records were a way of spreading high culture to the masses. Um, and so they found their star, Victor, in Enrico Caruso, who became the world's first superstar of the record of the recording age and that's why their their technology which was the flat disc took off so much that's why we still have the flat disc today it's not necessarily a superior system to any of the other systems but it's just that they had the product they had the people they had the the musical touch uh, and that's where you see the importance of content really because that's what a record man is it's a person who finds the content you can no system will ever take off unless you have content and let's go ahead and hear some of that content this is enrico caruso and i'm going to mispronounce this song title but forgive me it's elusivan la stella from 1914 enrico caruso That was Enrico Caruso doing Elusivan La Stella. And that's one thing that in my researches of the early record industry that's really struck me over and over again is the degree to which opera wasn't just high culture. It was mass culture. I mean, Enrico Caruso moved units. This guy sold millions of records and, you know, enormous superstar. And when you listen to opera, it's not hard to see the appeal. I always had this. It, intimidation factor where I, I thought opera was some kind of fancy and it's in a foreign language and I'm not going to understand it. So tell us about Victor and, and we know Berliner founded it, but there was a guy, Eldridge R. Johnson and his understudy or assistant Leon Douglas, who were the true record man, who they were the ones who brought Caruso to Victor and also branded the company with the, the, the famous logo, his master's voice of the dog, as you can hear my dog in the background. Mm. 
of of the dog, you know, listening to his master's voice being replayed by the record. Tell us about these guys in this first generation of true record men. Mm. I think what they did was they made they humanized something that looked very technological. Um, for example, Leon Douglas, he's he's considered to have made the first major sort of observation about the nascent record industry. He said that women. Um, or ladies, as he said, ladies uh, hated to have technological looking objects in their living rooms or their salons, as they called it. And I think the thing that's important to remember about this period is that, you know, I'm obviously based in Europe. And when you look at photographs of America in those years, the 1890s around there, America isn't really American yet. It's still extremely European. You can see from the way people dress, from the languages, from the amount of immigration coming from from the old world, that there's a lot of first-generation immigrants pouring into America. Um, so opera makes sense in it in that particular period of time. And as you said, there's, there, there's songs. There's a whole there's a, there's a there's a there's a song notion inside opera. Is that you know that the melody. It's very important. And I think that their first innovation was to get rid of the sound horn. The sound horn was slightly ugly looking. I think it looks pretty myself, but apparently people didn't like it in those days. And so they invented a thing called Victrola, which was a hidden internal horn um, inside the machine. And that's really where everything took off on a big scale is because women liked it. And the great thing about music is, you know, you're right in saying that it's always been a male-dominated industry. But the weird thing is, is that really the music market itself has always been very matriarchal. Um, it's when women get excited about something that you really have booms taking off. You know, you don't have a party until the women hit the dance floor type of situation. And all of their advertising, all of their products, everything was very humanized, very feminine, very beautiful. And that's how they killed Edison, because Edison just didn't have that feel. Um, and as you rightly said, this is the beginning of the, you know, all the, all the cliches of the rock industry of today started around then. People fainted in the street when they saw Caruso. Um, there was huge money involved in, in, in his record contracts. Um, it, it, it was a precursor to everything that followed. Absolutely. And your point about America being very European in this period, I think, is really valid. And the next big wave of innovation that hits in the 1920s is when America becomes Americanized. And the key is African-Americans being heard because yes. the you know all American music all the way back to Stephen Foster and minstrelsy derives essentially from, Af you know, the collision of Anglo-American and Afro-American cultures. Mm. And yet the record industry didn't want anything to do with African-American artists. A few people, you know, Burt Williams and James Reese yeah. Europe and W.C. Handy got to make records, but it wasn't a big piece of the record industry no. until um, OK Records puts out Mamie Smith. Crazy Blues sells something like 75,000 copies in a week or a month. I can't remember, but, you know, this immense seller. And suddenly they discover there's this market. And, you know, then we get Bessie Smith and we have Black Swan Records and Ethel Waters and all these great artists. The Delta Bluesman gets to record. Jazz gets recorded originally by a white band. That was another thing I learned from this book, the original Dixieland jazz band um, 
you know, they weren't the first jazz band, obviously, but they were the first New Orleans jazz band to make it to New York and record. So we get this whole era of ferment and this explosion of, I want to say, authentic American culture, what we would now recognize as American culture. But I'm kind of rushing through that because I want to get to our next character that I want you to talk about, which is John Hammond, who's yeah. this incredible figure who discovered Count Basie, Billy Holiday, Teddy Wilson, Charlie Christian, um, Aretha Franklin, Bob Dylan, Leonard Cohen, Bruce Springsteen, Stevie Ray Vaughan. I mean, this incredible career. Tell us about John Hammond. How the heck did this guy do all this? Yeah, he really is. I mean, when I discovered him, I didn't really know about him, actually, until I started researching the book. And I, when I sort of stumbled on him, I was like, whoa, OK, it's, we've, we've, we've sort of got a, a whole spine down the system that really does go from that old forgotten world, the pre-World War II world, into, wow, into the modern times. Bruce Springsteen, for me, is pretty recent. Um, so um, I would just add something on what you were saying there. I think the important thing to remember in all of this is the huge effect that World War One had on the world generally. I think this. I think um, the generation below the Victorians, the sort of interwar generation, they rejected Victorian culture, um, and opera became synonymous with that old European world. And Europe got a very bad name for itself in that time because it was seen as sort of fake culture or pretentious culture that, you know, sent its children to war. So all of this sort of the emergence of black music um, uh, in America. And again, the terms, I mean, it's, it's I mean, people call it, you know, uh, race records or sort of Negro with a capital N. I mean, if you look at some of the terms today, the same for country music, which was called hillbilly with a capital H. So it was very, very primitive. Um, and I think the world was still very racist in those days, unquestionably so. But I think the, the appeal um, amongst, uh, let's call it white audiences, and again, we're getting to these kind of very uh, strange terms, but um, it was a rejection of Europe. You know, I, 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 one of the things that fascinated me about the sort of 1920s was that slang became so f popular. The whole flapper culture was a rejection of everything that had been before. Um, so in this sense, that's where all of this interesting African-American music finds an audience is because it shocks parents. You know, parents, older parents who grew up on opera found this music, you know, awful. They hated it. It was like, what are you listening to? This is a collapse of civilization. And I think this is a, a thing we see constantly through music is this sort of intergeneration, inter intergenerational rebellion. And you couldn't find a better figure than John Hammond to sort of encapsulate this because he came from a very, very rich family. I mean, and before Vanderbilt. you tell us more about John Hammond, I want to jump in so I can introduce our next song. And this is one of John Hammond's crown jewels. This is Billie Holiday singing God Bless the Child. Them that's not shall lose. So the Bible said, and it still is news. Mama may have, Papa may have, but God bless the child that's got his own, that's got his own. Yes, the strong gets more 
And that was Billie Holiday singing God Bless the Child, one of John Hammond's many discoveries. And now get back to telling us the story of this singular individual. Yeah, I, I, his family story really is, I think, crucial to understanding his, his, his life story. Is that He came from extreme wealth. He didn't have to worry about money. He was different to everyone else in the record industry in the sense that he had money already. Um, you know, he wasn't massively rich because he, uh, he was on a trust fund, but he didn't have to work. And the whole point of the 1920s is that you had a, the first record crash. Radio blew up in the 1920s and really sent the record industry into a slump. Then you had the Great Depression, or so you had the Wall Street crash in 1929. So it was a similar situation to what we had with Napster and then the credit crunch. You have like a technological competition, and then suddenly you have a financial crisis. And so the 1930s, when John Hammond steps into the scene, is that it's just that the, the industry's on its knees. It's practically extinct. It's way worse than the situation we had in the, in the 2010s. But because he had his own money, he could do as he wanted. So he was a journalist. He was a radio DJ. He did. He just did anything he he could really. And uh, again, he didn't have to worry about being paid. And he became a sort of a helper. Uh, he liked to help people. He he would find musicians and he would help them get work, introduce them to people. He would get them maybe a record deal. But because the the, the sales were so bad in that period, like Billy Holiday's was only selling like five thousand copies per per record, and that was quite good figures for the nineteen thirties. Five thousand was you know it was kind of almost a hit. So that's where he comes in. It's because of his money. Because of his education, because he was very enlightened, and I think this is the interesting part, is that you have this generation, uh, interwar generation, who are absolutely convinced that America must be changed and that music is the way to change America. Is that only through music will people give black people the respect they deserve. And Hammond was almost an evangelist for this. He, he pressured um, Benny Goodman to integrate his bands. He put on the spirituals to swing concerts in Carnegie Hall uh, that featured, you know, Count Basie, the first boogie woogie pianist, almost featured Robert Johnson, who had unfortunately been poisoned and passed away before he could make it up to New York for that concert. So Hammond is this, he's basically got a political agenda that he's expressing through aesthetics. Yes, and it was quite sophisticated. For example, because he was well-educated and had money, he was sort of ahead of a lot of... He lived in Greenwich Village, so you see the beginning of the whole Greenwich Village folk scene. And the Greenwich Village folk scene that we associate with Bob Dylan much later on with just folk, it did begin with a lot of blues singers as well. I mean, Cafe Society was based in the village. He helped with the opening of that. That's where Billie Holiday first performed Strange Fruit. Um, so, but the crowd in, in, of, the, of that interwar crowd was very communist. There was a lot of communist activity around there. But John Hammond was sort of a step ahead of everyone in the sense that he had the money to go to Russia. He went to Russia in the 1930s and saw how oppressive and tyrannical it was. So he came back to America not at all a communist. On the contrary, he saw that communism was, was, was as dangerous as fascism, but absolutely convinced that it was just this one issue that was really, really uh, damaging America, which was segregation. It's racism. Um, so that's what's so good about him is that he was um, nuanced. He was sophisticated. He, he, had, he was a clever guy, and he knew how to help people in the right way. 
absolutely did. But even John Hammond's life gets derailed by World War II. The record industry goes through enormous changes and starts to have a comeback because of jukeboxes. Suddenly people have a reason to buy records in bulk and, and people, you know, even coming out of the depression could afford a nickel or a dime or a quarter for the jukebox. And suddenly there's a big market for records again, but then there's a shortage of shellac, the ingredient that they made records out of before vinyl. There's uh, strikes by the musicians union. The entire economics of the music industry are changed by things like gas rationing and rubber shortages. So the big bands are no longer economically viable after you know booming in the mid to late thirties. And so Hammond kind of has to get, back into the record industry and he ends up at columbia which is the big record industry at the time tell us a little bit about how he interacted with these guys and tell us who these people are goddard lieberson and mitch miller were the big wheels at columbia when hammond comes back who were they and how did they change what hammond was doing well that's the thing is a bit of a reversal of fortunes is because in the 30s these guys all knew each other and hammond was the rich guy he was the guy who would drive them around. You know, he, they'd sort of tag along to his things. Goddard Lieberson was just a sort of, he was a minor wannabe producer at the time. But by the time we get to after the Second World War, and as you said, the post-Second World War was a really difficult time for a lot of, I mean, our generations, we forget that, what it was like for these people who'd been living in music. They had to go off and do military service. Um, it was really difficult to get the whole business back on the rails after the Second World War. And Hammond is a good example of a guy who came back uh, much older, uh, divorced, like a lot of men. A lot of marriages didn't, couldn't stand World War II. Um, but the great thing about the whole period is that once again, we have something happening in the female world. It was really women's homesickness, let's call it. And I mean men being away uh, on a massive scale that brought the record industry back to life. And there's a lot of the buying that went on in the 40s was, was from women. Um, so Hammond comes back to Columbia, which is sort of a bit of a sleeping beauty because Columbia was a really important label sort of earlier on and sort of through the 30s and so on. And it, 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 it was a major, but I think RCA was bigger in those days. And Goddard Lieberson then gets a big um, promotion. He becomes boss of uh, Columbia. So, the, you know, his, his, one of his oldest friends who traveled around with him in a car um, looking for musicians from the spirituals to swing concert in 1938 is suddenly now a kind of a chairman of a large major. And I think that's very important was because that Hammond, he, because one of his oldest friends who he'd really helped suddenly gets a huge job was that Hammond was kind of safe now. He was an eccentric. People didn't really get him. It was because he didn't care about money. He didn't care about record sales. And he was given a lot of power in those years, um, a lot of freedom, let's say, in Colombia to try things out. And that's where he signs the likes of Aretha Franklin and Bob Dylan and so on. Mitch uh, Miller is a bit different because he really was a very good producer. And he was making the money for the label. You know, the sing-along with Mitch TV show that you had in the early 60s, that was huge. So he was kind of making the money for, for, for Columbia uh, with really, really huge sellers. And I think what's interesting is because these guys were, as I said, they were all very educated and very, very, very on a crusade almost, that they understood that you had to have 
big sellers coming into the company and that you have to spend profits, a certain percentage of the profits on culturally interesting material. So Goddard Lieberson, for example, lets John Hammond do what he wants. He also, you know, sends Alan Lomax off around the world to do all those fabulous um, field recordings. Um, and that's where Columbia really steps into, I mean, that period, late 50s, early 60s, Columbia is without question the best label in the world. Without a doubt. And let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. And when we come back, I want to start talking about the Indies part of your title, Cowboys and Indies. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner. And Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. So we've been talking about John Hammond and his time at Columbia, and I'm really glad that you gave Mitch Miller a little bit of shine as a as a good producer because he was he's much reviled now by everybody from Frank Sinatra fans through rock and roll fans because Mitch Miller's the guy who produced How Much Is That Doggy in the Window and Frankie Lane and Johnny Ray and the Sing Along with Mitch series he was a outspoken critic of rock and roll but he really did kind of invent the studio recording you wouldn't have people like phil Spector and george martin doing what they did without mitch miller and his generation of pioneers les paul also should get a mention but now i want to turn away from the majors and to the indies which is the second half of your book title and 
You talk a lot about a lot of the guys that we've covered on the show before, Sam Phillips and uh, Ahmet Erdogan and Jerry Wexler at Atlantic Records. And I want to kind of glide over that period of rock and roll when these independent labels came out and first with rhythm and blues and then with rock and roll really shook up the industry. And I want to talk about um, Britain in the 60s and 70s and 80s, because I think the book does a really great job of covering that period. And I want to talk about one of the great eccentrics of the music business. And this is Chris Blackwell of Island Records. Tell us about Chris Blackwell and why do we, why is he such an important figure in the history of the record industry? Yeah, I'm glad you asked me about that because again, this is, you know, and there's a lot of um, transatlantic competition. I got, you know, comments from people, private comments who saying, Americans in particular saying, well, why did you give so much space to Chris Blackwell and Island Records? And I thought that was a little unfair. I mean, Ireland really is a massively, massively important label in Britain. I mean, if you were to have a vote amongst, you know, real record collectors, what was the best ever English label? I mean, I think Ireland would definitely win uh, just because there's so much good stuff on the label and it's so varied. And he is a very interesting character. Um I mean, his background alone is unusual. I mean, his his mother was a Sephardic Jew from, um, her family came from like Portugal. Uh, he was born in Jamaica. Uh, his father was Irish. So sort of half, half Jewish, half Irish, grew up in Jamaica. Really interesting sort of uh, ethnic mix. Um, and because of that, he traveled a lot as a kid. You know, he saw Europe. He went to America. He lived in the, 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 the Caribbean. Um, and a very uh, interesting sort of person uh, who saw a lot of his mother was was, was involved with Ian Fleming, uh, the inventor of James Bond. So we saw the first James Bond films being being made. Um, and he moves to England and starts an import business of bringing in sort of early pre-reggae sort of Caribbean car- car- music. Caribbean music. I know you pronounce it Caribbean in America, but in music from the islands. And that was very different. And it sort of gained, it sort of connected to the whole mod scene that was happening in England at the time in the mid 60s. Mods, uh, you know, the Who and all that. But even before the Who, you had all this music of a lot of sort of American R&B that was mixing up with all of this uh, Jamaican R&B, Rocksteady. And he starts Island Records, and Island Records just gets very lucky, right time, right place, um, and moves into the whole sort of psychedelic scene. So you have this improbable mixture of uh, music from the islands with all of this London 60s stuff. And the, the you know, if the amount of stuff on Ireland is just, if you make a list of all the great, great English music from that period, so much of it is on Ireland. And not just artists, it's also an incubator for other labels. It's where Chrysalis begins. It's where um, Virgin Records begins and lots of other smaller production companies. Um, and I think that's a really important thing to remember about the music business is that it is about networks. It is about uh, sort of gangs of people uh, setting things up. And from literally from a room of very ambitious people, you can have within 10 years just this enormous production of fabulous music moving in all directions. It really is a fascinating story and an, an amazing period. And Chris, Chris Blackwell is such a character. He's um, one of these people that you're just sort of dumbfounded 
as to how he did what he did when you hear the stories of the way he worked. I mean, he definitely brought the Jamaican habit of the morning spliff uh, with him wherever he went. You, I just picture him in linen pants and barefoot smoking a doobie and and not taking calls from other people in the record industry. Well, that was it. I mean, in many ways, that sort of was the downfall. I felt that researching and talking to a lot of these people, I felt that that was in some part the success and the failure of Ireland was that it was such a crazy company. Um, it was, well, crazy. It was crazy, but they were very focused. I mean, they, all these guys who succeeded all worked very, very hard. But yeah, there was a lot of drugs in that company for sure. And in many ways, it does explain how it kind of struggles to keep going for so long because there was just so many casualties. It lost a lot of people. If when you look at Ireland in the late 60s and early 70s towards Ireland in the mid 80s, a lot of the people have gone simply because they've had so many personal problems. So... Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, it's it's um, the the audaciousness of it. I mean, he didn't seem to care, um, but he was sort of on top of things. A very, very. I mean, I'm I'm amazed I haven't made a film about him. I mean, he really deserves to have a film like uh, about him. A really interesting character. Yeah, it's an incredible story, and you know, he he has. Um... My Girl Lollipop and various sort of left field hits. They go even hits in the United States of not quite ska, blue beat, rock steady going into ska. But and then he has massive success with Steve Winwood and the Spencer Davis group and then pulls Muff Winwood out of the group when that group falls apart. And Muff Winwood becomes Steve's brother, the drummer of the Spencer Davis group, becomes a big wheel at Island Records. And mm. Then he discovers this new wave of Jamaican music, which is destined to have an even bigger impact than ska. And he finds this guy, Bob Marley. Can you tell us some of the what went into Chris Blackwell bringing Bob Marley to the world? Because it was not easy. No, it wasn't easy. And I think he really does deserve credit for that, is that, you know, because he grew up in Jamaica, um, Chris Blackwell, he was always very proud of Jamaican music. He always heard, he never judged it like non-Jamaicans would. He he saw that the, 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 the brilliance in it. He saw the talent that maybe other people couldn't see. And if you listen to, I mean, there's a lot of great reggae from sort of the late 60s. If you listen to all the Lee Scratch Perry, the stuff that was sort of happening inside Jamaica that hadn't really broken out of Jamaica yet. It is very lo-fi. Um, it is very extreme. It is kind of psychedelic in its own way. And I think what Chris Blackwell understood was that he really needed to make reggae appealing to the rock audience. And that's where you hear like the early Bob Marley records on Ireland. You see that huge jump, sonic jump, into really big sounding um, uh, I suppose reggae rock, you know, really does change color. And that's Chris Blackwell producing. I mean, he brought in all, you know, really good musicians onto that to try and find ways to take out that sort of lo-fi, um, I, I suppose, simplicity that was really stopping it from getting airplay. And he struggled with that. Even when he got the sound right, people still didn't really get it. I mean, what actually broke Bob Marley, believe it or not, was actually uh, Eric Clapton's cover of I Shot the Sheriff. That went, went to number one in America on the Billboard's uh, Hot 100. And it was from there that people sort of go, oh, right, uh, you know, Eric Clapton's done this song. Who, who wrote that? And people started to work backwards. And by that stage, you know, Marley had a few albums out and things started to go well from around there. But Marley was a slog. And it's a good example of 
you know, um, if you really believe in an artist, if you really think the person's special, it takes, sometimes it takes a few albums. It takes a lot of, a lot of persistence to make the people really, you know, buy the stuff. Um, there certainly wouldn't be Bob Marley as we know him today had an opinion for Chris Blackwell, that's for sure. And let's hear a little bit of Bob Marley. This is Bob Marley and the Whalers doing Concrete Jungle from Catch a Fire, the first song on the first Island Records for Bob Marley. Bob Marley and the Whalers doing Concrete Jungle, the first song and the first release uh, they did on Island Records with Chris Blackwell. And, and yeah, the story of Bob Marley's, the, the struggles to break Bob Marley in the States are just fascinating. I mean, everything from initial attempts to market it to an African-American audience, turns out they were very resistant to Caribbean culture, that there's these intra-diaspora sort of feuds and tensions where the Jamaicans love to hear American R&B, but the reverse was not so true at first. Reggae since then has, um, I think, penetrated African-American culture, and, and Bob Marley is as beloved in African-American circles as he is anywhere else on the planet. And this guy becomes this enormous international superstar by the time of his death. I mean, he's as famous as the Beatles or Muhammad Ali on a global level, yeah. you know, right up there with Che Guevara uh, as an international hero of revolution. But Blackwell um, has this long life at island records i mean and and tell us a little bit about his the island records in the 80s and then the how they sort of cannibalized stiff records and got a second wind yeah i mean island as i said had problems all along around sort of the late 70s because of the burnout factor i mean it really was a kind of a uh, a place charging along. There was a lot of drugs being taken, sort of um, by the artists and sort of you know inside the company, and it, and it did lose. It lost Chrysalis that went off on its own. Um, that sort of innocence of the early '60s and sort of early '70s sort of vanished in during the towards the the the, the late '70s. And also, Ireland, I don't think it really didn't really see the new wave coming in the way that, you know, Sire Records in America or Stiff Records in England saw it coming. It was still very much sort of stuck in the, in, in the, in the reggae thing. So it sort of missed out on a lot of the punk and new wave stuff um, from the late 70s. And by the early 80s, it was in trouble. Um, I mean, one of the things about all these English companies is that they all tried to break America. They all opened offices in America. And I, it's very, very difficult for traditionally um, English labels to sort of to break America um, without having low, you know, help on the ground, without having Americans running the, running the operations. Because I think that, you know, in England, you have the BBC, you can make a lot of noise in London, whereas when uh, English sort of record 
producers arrive in America, they're always shocked by the, the level, the size of the country. That you can't just, you know, there's no BBC, there's no centralized place. There's lots of regional capitals and there's so many radio stations in America. And that was the curse for Ireland. It was the curse for Chrysalis. It was the curse for Virgin Records. All the big English companies all encountered massive problems with the same thing. They're spending too much money in America. Um, and Ireland was definitely a major casualty of that and almost went out of business, but was saved actually, believe it or not, by Bob Marley's greatest hits, Legend, which came out in 1984. Um, if you look at Bob Marley's sales, sales stats when he was alive, they really weren't very good. Um, it's strange to imagine him not really being a major artist, um, but he only really started selling millions of records after he died. Um, so in 1984, they had this huge sort of hit, which was legend, the, the, the greatest hits. Um, and also Frankie Goes to Hollywood, this new, um, you know, that's Trevor Horn, a very good producer, obviously, uh, who was the main man behind Frankie Goes to Hollywood, and that explodes. Um, and at that point, yeah, uh, Chris Blackwell has uh, Dave Robinson, who's the boss of Stiff Records. Uh, he's sort of running the company uh, as a general manager, although he's not, you know, the owner. He's he's running things, and that's really, really good. So they get this huge sort of second life. U2 obviously start to explode around there as well in mid '80s, and Ireland becomes really rich again. Um, but Chris Blackwell's problem was always the same thing. It wasn't just America. It was also films. His big thing was films. He loved films. He was always financing these independent films. And it's the problem with music is that it's, it, films are so much more expensive to produce. It's very easy to, to waste a lot of money. Uh, you know, the scales are completely different. So he got into all kinds of trouble in the mid-80s um, in Washington, D.C., uh, financing this film called Good to Go, about the go-go scene. And it almost put uh, Ireland out of, record, uh, out of, uh, out of business. Um, they, had to, they couldn't pay you two their royalties, basically. And that was sort of the beginning of the end for Ireland, really. Yeah, and that's a fascinating story, too, because Go-Go is this local scene that came out of D.C., this very unique regional American music style, and Chris Blackwell bet the house on Go-Go and lost to hip-hop <laughs> and, and lost to house music and techno, too. Go-Go ends up being like a distant third or fourth out of yeah. the new uh, uh, African-American genres that, are, that come out in that period. And also, uh, go ahead. No, no, absolutely, you're right. And you know, so even even Chris Blackwell, you know, even even the best get it wrong. I mean, it is. The, that's the problem with music is that we're talking like you, you, there's a, an element of gambling involved in all of this. You know, you bet on the wrong horse, and it can really, you know, cost you your company. Um, and that's certainly a case. Yeah, no, he didn't see that coming. I guess he was maybe didn't have the touch anymore uh, at that point. Um, it's very hard to do what John Hammond did and sort of keep picking winners even into your 50s and 60s. You know, like uh, I'm sure some of those of us can feel that after a certain age, it, you do sort of lose touch with the street. Absolutely. And even John Hammond couldn't get a hit out of Aretha Franklin or Bob Dylan. You know, he he finds these great talents and then becomes notorious as a guy who can't bring them home and can't mm. can't bring them to that audience. But I want to talk about another uh, record man who kind of dominates British music in the dominates is kind of the wrong term, but it's very important in British music in the 80s. And I'm talking about Jeff Travis at Rough Trade. 
Rough Trade is this unique thing because they're more than just a record company. They're also this distribution house for, and they kind of single handedly create the UK independent music scene. Tell us about mm. Jeff Travis. Yeah, that, it really is interesting. And again, he, he gets quite a lot of, I mean, Rough Trade is a big name in England. You'll see BBC documentaries about Rough Trade. He'll be invited onto a lot of things, Jeff Travis. But I find that American, you know, music culture doesn't give Rough Trade enough attention. And I was very happily surprised to find that um, Sub Pop, the uh, grunge label, uh, which comes much later, obviously, uh, is from Seattle, uh, the founder, uh, Bruce Pavitt of Sub Pop, he was fascinated in Rough Trade uh, he, uh, and tried to rebuild an American version of, and that's what grunge sort of came out of. And the whole point about um, Rough Trade was, as you said, it's this distribution system. They sort of created a federation of really cool record stores all over Britain. They figured out who was who all over Britain in any city, in any town, who was the cool record shop, got everyone to sort of become wholesalers for their region and created this distribution system called the cartel. Um, but it's all based out of rough trade in London. And it just got huge because in the 80s, once you have sort of big league pop and MTV videos, once that market started to get huge, you found that there was a counterculture growing underneath it of people who were sick of that. A lot of people out there who were just bored of hearing the same top 40 pop and seeing the same big videos. So rough trade will always be synonymous in British minds with sort of counterculture, with uh, providing alternatives. And on within that rough trade sort of incubator, you have loads of really cool labels like 4AD, like Mute, like Factory Records. So we're talking, you know, artists like Depeche Mode, New Order, um, you know, the Cocteau Twins, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They're all feeding through this alternative system, which is, it has its own charts. The artists don't have to have videos, which makes it completely different for um, the labels involved. So you have this amazing, um, I suppose, sort of breeding ground of interesting music that's coming through Rough Trade. And it's, as you said, Jeff Travis is the main sort of founder, and he sets up a label, and he's the guy who finds the Smiths. And so the Smiths is sort of the in-house band of Rough Trade, who are really, really big, obviously, in England. And this is and perfect, because I want to introduce our next song, which is The Smiths' How Soon Is Now. That was the Smiths, How Soon Is Now. And this is one of those things where there's this a language barrier because of our common language and the, and the distance across the Atlantic Ocean where as a fan, first becoming, a, you know, I was 15 or so when that came out. Music is everything to me in my life. And the Smiths 
blew me away, but they sound just like New Order and Depeche Mode to me. It's, it reads like dance music. But then later on, I find out that the Smiths are this reactionary force trying to reimpose guitar rock and trying to push away the synth pop um, that's happening at the time. So, But it, to, to me, it was all telescoped, and I couldn't even tell the difference between the two sides. So fascinating. So, but tell us about the fall of Rough Trade, because they build this really unlikely, as you say, the cartel, and build this whole ecosystem that drives independent British music throughout the eighties. And this music, like you said, it's artists like new order and Depeche mode that end up, you know, packing stadiums and selling millions of records all around the world. How did the rough trade dream end? Well, one of the things, um, that I didn't notice as I was writing, but as someone said to me, it was, it was one of the, one of the guys involved in that, Martin Mills, who was the owner of the beggars group. We're going to talk about him later. I hope. Um, he sort of said to me, reading cowboys and indies, you know, I, Every time, it made me realize that having a hit is almost as dangerous as having too many flops. And I hadn't noticed that when I was writing this, but it's, it's actually very difficult to uh, not go bust when things are going fabulously well, because growth can be out of control when, when, when a company grows too fast. If you don't have the systems in place, the managers, the, the stocking systems, the whole accounting systems, if you don't have the infrastructure to handle huge growth, it will kill you. And it happens throughout the record industry. And that's a classic case for, for, for Rough Trade. Rough Trade were passionate people, indie record stores, probably guys like you and me, who suddenly find themselves having to run this multi-million pound monster that's just growing hugely. The late 80s, sort of 87, 88, 89, around there. Once um, house music starts to take off, I mean, and once mega stores start to open, once CDs start to take over, you see that suddenly this small niche world of vinyl music and underground music has got so big that they can't handle it. And that all the big shops, all the big megastores, they want to have barcodes on their, CD, on their CDs. They want to have computerized billing systems. And these little warehouses all over, they can't, they can't adapt fast enough. And that's what basically pulled it under was that their own success. They ended up all spending fortunes on computer systems. And, of course, the computer was very, very you know, new in those days. It cost a fortune to build a computer and have a whole stocking system. Um, I think uh, Rough Trade paid £200,000 for a computer that it never worked in the end. Um, wow. And £200,000 in, in the late 80s was enormous money. It would be over a million in today's money. Um, and that was one of the things that kills them, uh, as well as all their partners. And that's basically what happened, is that um, success can be as dangerous as its opposite. Absolutely. And now tell us about Martin Mills and Beggar's Banquet and how they kind of picked up the pieces. Yeah, I mean, he that's still going. And that's sort of where my story led was the, um, you know, the, the crash uh, of the CD sort of industry with Napster and so on. It was when you talk to all of these guys who are still in the business, everyone remembers the 90s, you know, very badly. You know, I didn't enjoy the 1990s myself. I was in college at the time, and I can remember things sort of getting sort of visibly corporate. But, I, you know, I was too young to really understand it in that way. But the 90s were when things got very – when business took over. 
a lot of companies were sold. You know, that's when Ireland was sold. That's when A&M was sold. That's when Motown was sold. That's when Chrysalis was sold. And there was massive sort of consolidation. And then the majors started to eat each other. Um, so that whole industry uh, based around the CD sort of got smaller and smaller. Well, it got bigger and bigger, but the, the number of companies shrunk into in this sort of consolidation process. And Beggars was always a little bit different because it was very well run. Um, and it sort of took over from Ireland. You know, the two big sort of companies in, in modern sort of since the 1970s anyway in England has been Ireland and then Beggars. And Martin Mills is the boss of Beggars, and he was just smarter. Um, so within the Beggars group, you had 4AD, which was obviously very successful um, as a sort of, a, well, it's called the goth label. I mean, they hate hearing that, but that's, I suppose that's what, how people understand it. But one of the younger labels of that group, XL Recordings, became massively popular in the late 90s. It, it broke with the Prodigy. Um, and then in the early 2000s, it had groups like the White Stripes, um, and then they had Adele in more recent years. Um, so, or, and a lot of other really cool electro stuff, sort of um, early 2000s music. So they have, you know, Beggars had really hot product and always had hot product, you know, from, from, from the 80s through to today, they've never stopped having hot product. Um, and they were just very different about how they went about their business. And it is one of the big survivors of the whole sort of early 2000s crash. It's now the biggest record company in England, now that EMI has, has, was sold and carved up. So Beggars is now the leader um, of the independents. And they've sort of kept that whole rough trade. I mean, they revived rough trade. Rough trade is now part of the Beggars group. Um, and they're the guys carrying the torch today. And where do you see music going? That kind of takes us through the book, but where do you see music, the music business, where's it gone since you ended the book and where do you see it going from there? Well, I think the big thing, uh, the big change, the big, uh, the massive change is the way in which with streaming, now streaming has, streaming is dominant. Streaming is now the new normal. And with, streaming works on market share, which is, you know, people pay monthly subscriptions for streaming services like Spotify or Apple Music or whatever else. Um, and the, the old system that we've been talking about now was always based on sales, record sales. You had to sell your music. Whereas now we've gone, so for the record producer, you'd have to sell your stuff and that you'd have a, maybe a one-off sell. Then the CD was, era was fabulous because you could resell the same records a second time, even more expensive. And that sort of created the boom that we had in the 1990s, um, which was dangerous as we now know. Um, but now we're back to a different system, which is like all these owners of old catalog. They're like sort of landlords. They own catalog and money's coming in every month from Spotify, from Apple, from YouTube, from all these streaming systems. So the industry has come back to life. Um, I was happy that my prediction in Cowboys and Indies came to pass, you know, that this is just cyclical. There was just a technological revolution and it takes time for things to regulate. And just like all the crashes before, um, today's music market has come back to life because all of the big tech companies, they need new product. They need fresh product. Apple can't keep growing. Google, all these big companies, they can't keep growing unless there's lots of new music coming out. 
So it's in their interests that the record industry survives. So all of that sort of arrogance that you had in the early 2000s, where the tech world looked down on the music industry as being old and out of touch, that's over now. You know, that war is, is, is finished. Today, you have a very different kind of record industry in formation. It's very interesting. There's more women working. It's a completely different sort of culture to today's music world. Um, Scandinavia has really come up. It's now, it's now the sort of third superpower behind America and Britain. There's lots of really interesting stuff coming out of Scandinavia. Um, it's based on streaming. And that's sort of the new normal uh, and the great thing about today is that the costs are lower. I mean, we complain about streaming, but it's a cleaner system. It's less costly for producers. You know, trucks and vinyl and all the old system was very expensive and very dirty and very wasteful um, compared to today's thing, where people can upload music and it can spread around the world. Uh, so we're going through a period of regulation that the mad sort of Wild West revolution of the early 2000s is finished now. We're now in a period of regulation where all sides need this new industry to stabilize, to be, to create employment, to create music. And so that's what everyone's trying to do right now. You know, peace has really broken out between all the, all the different parties. The Pax Streamicana, I guess. So my guest has been Gareth Murphy. The book is Cowboys and Indies, the epic history of the record industry. Gareth, I think we sort of did a pretty good job of racing through the whole history of the record industry in an hour. <laughs> Thank you Well, that's what it is. I think that was the whole point of the book, is that we're just trying to get stand back and get away from the noise and the complaining and the moaning. Like, where are we today? And that's where we are. So we're getting through the last crisis. And thank you so much for helping us understand it better. Thank you for having me on your show. I hope to have you back to talk about Seymour Stein, too. Oh, <laughs> Thanks so much. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Nate welcomes S.H. Fernando Jr. to discuss his biography of the Wu-Tang Clan. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www. PantheonPodcast.com It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.